And uh, you can, we'll start off in John chapter 9, the book of John chapter 9, not the epistle of John in the back, but John chapter 9, so this one here is going to be, yep, there you go. John chapter 9. There are notes. Let's see. Sure, let me get an extra. We got an extra copy here. Do you need a pen, Eliana? Go. Everybody else all set? Good. You remember that when Paul and Silas were in the jail at Philippi, there was an earthquake, and the jailer came in. Paul said, "Don't be afraid. We are all here." And the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's response was to believe, to exercise faith. And today we want to look at faith as our response to the message, the good news of what God has done in Christ. We've been looking at that over the last few weeks. God is a God who is good. He is a God who is just. Man is very unrighteous. Because God is just, he will hold us accountable to him. But because he is just, our sin separates us from him. And what God has done is send Jesus Christ in human flesh to this world. He has sent Christ down. And we saw last week that God was in Christ. His mission was to reconcile the world to himself. How is it that God in Christ reconciles sinful men and women to himself? And the answer to that is he uses the instrument of faith. We'll look at this morning. So what is faith? We'll start off with that question. What is faith? I'm just going to grab one of these so that I can make sure that I follow along with your notes as well. What is faith? Well, there are three elements of faith that we see in the scripture, and we will notice two of them here in John chapter 9. Let's read John chapter 9, and I'll read verse 18, okay? John chapter 9, verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until... They called the parents of the man who had received his sight. This is the story where Jesus finds a man who has been blind from birth, and he opens the man's eyes. It was on the Sabbath day that he did this. And the Jewish leaders are upset with Christ in his action of healing the man on the Sabbath day. And so they confront the man and say, Who was it who did this to you? And the man says, I... I really do not know who he was. And they say to him, well, surely he must be a sinner, right? And the man says, no, he could not be a sinner. How can a sinner do such signs as opening the eyes of the blind? And so the Jews have to attack the fact that he actually was healed. And so in verse 18, the Jews refused to believe that the man had been born blind and that he had received his sight again, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. What is faith? Faith is an evaluation 
It's an estimation, it's a judgment that we make about something that we regard to be credible or true or reliable or trustworthy. And in order to make that assessment, that judgment, that estimation, we've got to have, first of all, in order to have faith, we've got to have knowledge. The first element of faith is knowledge. We've got to know something. And that's what these Jews have. They have knowledge that this man once was blind, but now he sees. They know that something has happened. And yet, they refuse to believe it. So the first thing that we must have to exercise faith is knowledge. And the way this knowledge comes to us is really critical. Uh, this knowledge can comes to us in the form of a statement. Something that someone tells us. A report. Words that have been put together to tell us about something that has happened. In this case, the Jews had a report that this man used to be blind and now he can see. That was the report that they had heard. That was the statement that had been made to them. We read reports in the newspaper. Perhaps a friend relays to us the report about a dramatic rescue of a child by the fire department from the fifth floor of a burning building. In either case, the reports come to us in the form of words. And this is why God has actually given us a book of words. The Bible is a book of words, it's not a book of pictures. And the reason for that is because words are what we believe. We talk about not believing our eyes, but that's a bit of a misnomer when you look at what the scripture says. Faith takes hold of words, it takes hold of a report. And so, the first thing that we must have in order to believe is we must have a report of something. We must have come to know about something. The scripture gives us many statements, many reports of things. For example this, I am the Lord, I do not change, God says. That is a statement that God makes to us. Or God makes the statement to us that all men are sinners. Or that God will torment impenitent sinners in hell forever. Or that Jesus died in my place to pay the penalty my sins deserve. Or that he rose bodily from the grave. Or that he will come again. These are all statements that God has given to us in the form of words. And we have come to know them as we read the scriptures. We know that God says these things. And the second element of faith then is an evaluation of what we know. Faith involves a mental testing. An evaluation of these words. It's making a judgment about the report. It's making a determination in our own minds about whether or not that report that we have heard is true. Is it reliable? Did it really happen as the witness said that it did? And that's what we see again here in John chapter 9 verse 18. The Jews had received this report that the man was blind and now he sees. But now they're faced with the question of whether or not that's actually believable. Is that actually true that he was was blind and now he does see. And the Jews in verse 18 do not believe that the man had been blind and now he sees until they called his parents and his parents verified that the report that they were hearing was indeed credible and true. It was a reliable report. 
And there's two things that we do anytime that we evaluate a report. We look at the report itself and we compare it to our understanding of this world and how the world works. For example, if we received a report this morning that aliens from outer space landed on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, would we regard that as true? Our understanding of reality, the way this world works, would lead us to say, no, that is not true. Aliens did not, in fact, land on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. So one thing that we do in evaluating these reports is we evaluate the report in terms of the reality that we know to be true about this world. But the second thing that we do when we evaluate these reports is, is we think very hard about the person who gave us the report. We evaluate the credibility of the reporter. And there's two different conclusions that we could reach about the reporter. We might think, based upon what I know about this man, what he's telling me, I do not believe it. Or we could say, based upon what I know about this woman, she's giving me a report. I know she would never lie. And so I accept her report as true and credible and valid. If she said it, I believe it. So faith requires, first of all, knowledge, and the second thing it requires is evaluation or mental assent. If we deem a report, if we say, that report is not believable, that report is not true, we do not, that does not lead us to exercise faith to believe it. But where we know something, where it has been reported to us, and where we mentally assent to it, we consider that report credible, we have at that point the first two elements of faith. But there's more to what faith is. Faith is not merely a mental evaluation about a report that we have received. There's something more. So what is, what is the essence of faith? What is the essence of faith? What is the third element? Today we live in an age of information overload. We scroll through Facebook. We have so much information available to us everywhere we turn. We see posts by many people on Facebook or Instagram. And the information age, the fact that we have so much information available to us, the information age has taught us that information is a commodity to be consumed. We are continually fed more and more information, and we ingest it, we take it into ourselves, almost like we take in water or food. And this is what the information age has taught us, that information is a commodity to be consumed, not something to be acted on. For example, we scroll through Facebook, and we see all sorts of reports about what our friends have done over the past week. But that information that we have does not require any response from us. We can just sit there and keep scrolling. To be sure, when we look at a post on Facebook or Instagram, we are confronted with the question, is what that actually says, is that reliable? Is that true? Did it really happen that way? We are confronted with the question of whether or not these things are reliable, but to, to, to a great extent, what we are fed, the information we receive. Uh, today, we have been taught that none of it really is to be acted upon. And so we keep scrolling on Facebook. But what about if you see a post on Facebook about hearing aids that 
supposedly work wonders. And they're only $199, and that includes free shipping. And you see this and you wonder, do those hearing aids really do what they're advertised to do? And the thing that makes that especially significant for you is that your mother has been getting hard of hearing. She obviously needs hearing aids before too much longer. So you've gone to the audiologist, and the audiologist has, has offered you some hearing aids that cost $7,500. And you ask for some additional information. It's a nice inquiry. And you put it on your book. The audiologist sends you some information, and you, you hold on to that information for a while. And you go to Google, and you start searching for affordable hearing aids. You're gathering information. And then one day, you come across this advertisement on Facebook. And you read through the testimonials. You read through the reviews of these hearing aids. And you click the button. And you give them your bank card details. And the company takes $199 out of your account. You order the hearing aids, you give them your bank details, and you stop looking for hearing aids at that point. You have entrusted your mother's need for hearing aids to that company. In that moment, you have become a believer. That is the final component of faith. It's knowledge of a report that we deem in our minds credible and true, but finally it is entrusting ourselves to that report. It's not just knowledge, it's not just evaluation, it is coming to rest in the report. This is what faith is. It includes knowledge, our minds are involved. involved. It includes assent, our heart's judgment is involved. We test and determine whether the report is credible, but it also involves <clears throat> our wills. We decide to entrust ourselves to this hearing aid company and not to another one. And let's look at one passage to see this. If you would turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans just follows the book of John. John, and then the book of Acts, and then the book of Romans. So Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> And we will begin reading in verse 16. The passage is talking about Abraham. You remember God has come to Abraham. And he said to Abraham, you will have a son, Abraham. Of course, Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. And the question is, how in the world can this come about? Do 89-year-old women have babies? Is a child born to a 99-year-old man? <clears throat> and so verse 16 uh, I'm sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may, may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the focus here is on Abraham and his faith, and what does the scripture say about his faith? Verse 17, it was written in the Old Testament... God said to him, I made you, I have made you the father of many nations. Here's a report that God gives him. You will be the father of many nations, Abraham. Abraham has knowledge. And then he begins the process of evaluating the credibility of what God has said to him. In verse 18, in hope. 
he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. Imagine a 99-year-old man considering his own body and trying to determine whether or not he actually is able to father a child. Abraham considers his own body. He evaluates God's promise that he will have a son. He compares that with the state of his own body. And he considers his body as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And he considers the barrenness of Sarah's womb. The scripture says it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. And yet, Abraham evaluates God's promise based upon the reality of the world as he knows it to be. Ninety-year-old women do not give birth to children. And yet, verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham is said here to be a believer, a man strong in faith. What can we see about his faith? First of all, Abraham knows God's promise. He will have a son. Secondly, he evaluates that promise. He considers the credibility of the one who promised. And Abraham determines that even though the circumstances seem to indicate otherwise, God will do as he has said. And so Abraham sits back content, satisfied. He doesn't seek out Hagar again. Instead, he goes into Sarah, for God has said that the child would come through his own seed and through Sarah's own body. He performs his duty as, a ma- as the male, and then he rests his head upon his pillow, fully convinced that God is able to do what he had promised. Abraham is a believer in God's promise. He knows them, he evaluates them as reliable, and he entrusts himself to them. With his whole being, Abraham is turned toward the Lord in dependence for this child. So at this point, we need to stop and we need to consider, make two conclusions about faith. There are two things we can conclude about faith. The first is that faith is not blind. Faith is not blind. Faith is not merely a positive feeling that it will all turn out in the end. Faith takes hold of specific promises of God. And unless you are in conscious awareness of the specific promise of God, unless you are constantly consciously evaluating God's promise as credible and entrusting yourself and your circumstances to it, unless that is true, your faith is not actually faith. Faith always takes hold of the word and the character of God. And where faith reaches out, but God has not spoken or promised, that faith that reaches out is actually blind and empty. It is not faith. The second conclusion we can make here about faith is that faith is more than simply intellectual assent. It's more than saying, yeah, I think that's probably true. Faith is not simply acknowledging that the Bible is true. It is not faith to say that Jesus died on the cross. It is not even faith to say Jesus died on the cross for sins. It is faith to say Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I entrust myself to God's promise that his sacrifice is sufficient for me. Faith entrusts itself. 
to the promise. So faith reaches out and takes hold of specific promises of God. But what about the content of saving faith? What does faith take hold of? What does it believe? The following book, we're in Romans. The next book, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15 is a really helpful passage on this. What is it that we must consider reliable and credible? What report from God must we entrust ourselves to if we are to be saved? Romans chapter 15, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4 give us the answer to that. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then to more than 500 brothers at one time. What is it that faith reaches out and takes hold of and considers reliable and entrusts itself to for salvation? It is this, that I am a sinner before God. Christ died, according to the Scriptures, for my sins. We might mentally assent to that, but do we really consider that true for ourselves, that I am a sinner? What about this, that Christ died for my sins, my sins deserve death. You really say that about yourself. Your sins deserve God's wrath and curse and death. Thirdly, that Christ died in my place for my sins. Fourthly, that He was buried. Fifth, that He rose again and was seen of witnesses. This is the report that faith reaches out and takes hold of and entrusts itself to. And in that moment of entrusting yourself to what God has done in Christ, the result is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So what is saving faith? I didn't put this in the notes, but saving faith is entrusting myself and my entire standing before God to His promises that Christ alone can secure for me a righteous verdict from God, even though I am guilty as charged. Now we need to look at the relationship between repentance and faith. This is at the bottom of the first page of notes. <clears throat> because the scripture makes it clear that repentance is required for eternal life. We have looked at the fact that Paul said to the Philippian jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Does repentance have any part of that? What is repentance? And what is its relationship to saving faith? Well, first of all, repentance is required for eternal life. If you never repent, you will not have eternal life. Acts 11:18. When they had heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance leads to eternal life. No repentance, no life. And the scripture is clear that both faith and repentance lead to eternal life. Listen to Mark chapter 1 verse 15. Christ says, repent and believe 
in the gospel. Faith and repentance are what are required for eternal life. But what is repentance? What does it mean to repent? This is where we look at the notes here. Is, is repentance, the word repent simply means to change, to change course. If I'm moving this direction and I turn and go this way, I have repented, I have changed course. What is repentance? Is it a change of my actions so that I start doing new things? Or is repentance merely a change of my mind, that I start thinking new things and believing new things? The scripture gives us passages that seem to indicate both of those. For example, is repentance a change of actions? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, just listen to it, says this, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, their sexual immorality, their sensuality that they have practiced. Is repentance a change of actions? Paul says, I may have to mourn over those who have not repented over their actions. They have not turned away from their impurity, their immorality, their sensuality. So is repentance a change of actions? It would seem so. Or is repentance merely a change of mind? Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Paul says, God may perhaps grant men repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Repentance leads to not a new life, but a new set of things that we know. In other words, it's a change of mind. So think about it this way. If I must repent to have eternal life, and repentance means changing my actions, does that mean that I must do good works to have eternal life? Am I saved by doing good works? Must I repent to have eternal life? What is repentance unto life? We will come back to an answer to that question of whether repentance is a change of action or a change of mind. But before we get there, we need to ask this question. What does faith do? And this is the back side of your notes now. What does faith do? And there's two answers that we need to look at here. First of all, faith unites believers to Christ. And secondly, the Spirit produces repentance. So let's see if we can understand this. You can turn to John chapter 16, and we'll get there in just a minute. You know what I'm going to do next week for you, Army? I'm going to take those Bibles, and I'm going to grab the page numbers and put them in my notes so that I can give you the page number. Yeah. And just turn right away to it. How's that? That might help you. Save you having to look to the front. Yeah. yeah. I'll try to find page numbers, and that might help you find it a little quicker. So what does faith do? When I believe in Christ, when I entrust myself to Christ, what happens? What does that faith do? Well, we saw just a little bit of explanation here in recapturing what we've been looking at to this point. We saw last week that God is at work to regather his scattered creation and to reconcile all things to himself. And in order to accomplish this, God has sent Christ, his son, into this world. 
Christ was God in human flesh. And right there we see the reconciliation between God and humanity begun. In Christ, it's God and man in one person. The reconciliation had begun. God was once again walking amongst men as he had in the Garden of Eden prior to our sin. The reconciliation had begun then in the coming of Christ. And yet, we see throughout the Gospels as Jesus Christ walks upon this earth, we find out that men's response to him, human beings' response to Christ is critical. God promises that in Christ is all that a man needs to be reconciled to God. And when men turn in faith to Christ and entrust themselves to Him, John chapter 2 says, then Christ entrusts Himself to them. In other words, there's a mutual relationship of trust that is established. It is not sufficient for men to reject Christ if they are to be united to God once again and reconciled. We must respond positively and favorably to Christ because in Him we are reconciled to God. And that favorable response that we find in the Gospels again and again, the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, puts its finger on repentant, on faith. Faith, believing in Jesus Christ, is the appropriate response that God calls for. This faith begins a relationship between Christ and the believer of love and trust. It begins a relationship the New Testament describes as being in Christ. It is our faith that unites us to Christ. We trust in Him and He entrusts Himself to us. Our faith unites us to Jesus Christ. And the first blessing that we find for those who are in Christ is that there is no longer then any condemnation. We are now at peace with God in Christ. God is in Christ. By faith we believe into Christ. And now it's God and man united in Christ. It is our faith in Christ that brings about that reconciliation. And God reconciles us to himself through the instrument of our faith. This is salvation. This is the restoration of the relationship that sin destroyed. Faith unites us to Christ. And next week we'll discuss in more detail what this means that faith unites us to Christ. But for now, it's simply enough for us to know that this happens. That our faith unites us inseparably to Jesus Christ. But at this point, it's important for us to understand what happens in this union between a believer and Christ. Christ has ascended up to heaven. We remain on earth. How is it then that we are united to him when we are separated by such distance? In what sense can we truly be united to him even across the distance between heaven and earth? Well, Paul tells us that we are most certainly in the heavenlies with Christ, according to Ephesians 2. He says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And so where Christ is in the heavenlies, we are there also. But where we are here upon this earth, can we say that Christ is with us? Or is he only in heaven? Surely he's everywhere. 
It's with unbeliever and believer alike upon this earth, always. And yet, if he's only with us in the same sense that he is with the unbelievers, in what sense then are we united to him? And Paul and John both developed the answer to that question of how we are united to Christ, even though he is so far from us in the heavenlies. Let's look at John chapter 16. We've turned there. Look at verse 7. Christ says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is preparing to leave this earth to return to heaven. And he prepares his followers for his departure by promising them that he will send them the Holy Spirit. That's who the Helper is. They have followed him as he's walked around this earth, 12 men. Now he's telling them he's leaving, he's returning to the Father in heaven. They will remain on earth. And how can they continue to follow him if he is so far removed from them? What does it look like to be in Christ, to follow him? How is his leaving them and returning to the Father to their advantage? Well, as he leaves, he promises to them the Holy Spirit, that he will send the Spirit to them. And this helper, this Holy Spirit, will be with them forever. Christ is leaving. The Spirit will remain with them forever. The Holy Spirit then replaces Jesus Christ. And Christ tells us in this chapter, as we read through a chapter, the, the next verse, verse 17, He tells us that the Holy Spirit who is coming, the Helper, will be in Christ's followers. In other words, Christ returns to heaven and He sends the Spirit in His place. And the Spirit is in the believer. The believer is in Christ. The Spirit is in the believer. And in that way, we are united to Christ. Listen to what Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 10 says. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. You see the connection there between the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and Christ Himself. If the Spirit is in you, then Christ is in you. Christ has said that believers are in Him and He is in them, and now Paul says that believers are in the Spirit and the Spirit is in them. In Romans 8, Paul is helping us to understand then what Jesus meant when He told His followers that He was going away, but that He would send the Spirit to them. And in sending the Spirit, it was Christ Himself coming to dwell in His followers. This then is how believers are united to Christ, by the indwelling Holy Spirit. In other words, union with Christ is union with Him by virtue of His Spirit's presence within us. Now why, why has Christ put His Spirit within us? And this will turn back to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. If you would turn to Ezekiel, this will be the last passage we'll look at this morning. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 36. Why has God put His Spirit within us? So Ezekiel is 403. In the middle of the Old Testament. Christ has returned to heaven. He has left us His Spirit. Why? 
Why has he left us his spirit? Ezekiel chapter 36. And we will read verse 26. Ezekiel 36 verse 26. We'll start with verse 26. Scripture says, this is God's promise. It's a promise of the new covenant, which Jesus said he inaugurated in his blood. So any person who has been washed in the blood of Christ, this is what is true of them. God says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. Jesus said it. I'm going back to heaven. I will give you the spirit. God's promise. I will put my spirit within you. Why? Why has God put his spirit within us? Why have we been united to Christ by faith? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. That is a change of actions. I will put my spirit in you, within you, and I will cause you to change your actions, to walk in my statutes, to be careful, to obey my rules. So let's see if we can get a little bit of an order here. <clears throat> Faith. We believe in Christ. That results in our union with Christ. That being united to Christ, Christ sends His Spirit within us. And the Spirit produces repentance. Change of works. So what is the relationship between faith and repentance? It is that faith results in repentance. It is a new walk. It is being careful to obey His statutes. It is God causing us to walk in His ways. And so that means two things now as we finish up. Two conclusions about repentance. The first is, good works are inevitable. Every person who claims to have believed in Christ, to have entrusted himself to Christ, every person who believes in Jesus Christ receives the Spirit and the Spirit causes them to walk in His ways. Is it possible that someone could believe in Christ and never repent? That is impossible. Is it possible that a person could believe in Christ and have eternal life and yet never walk in God's ways? The Spirit that Christ gives us. Paul says in Romans 8, he says there are two things the Spirit gives you. When you believe in Christ, and Christ gives you the Spirit, the Spirit brings eternal life, and the Spirit brings a new walk. And if you have one, you have the other. They go together. And so, good works are the inevitable result of faith. And secondly, Matthew 18, and we'll come to this passage in a few weeks, our repentance is ongoing. We repent every day. We turn away from sin. We embrace the way that Christ would have us to walk. 
And we do that by the Spirit's power. Paul says in Galatians 5 that we walk in the Spirit and do not fulfill the desires of our flesh. And so that's why Christ can say to his followers in Matthew 18, if a brother sins, go to him and tell him his fault. If he refuses to hear you, take two or three others. If he continues to refuse to repent and turn away from his sin, tell it to the church. And if he refuses finally to repent, and he will not submit himself to Christ and his word to the church, then throw him out of the church and count him to be an unbeliever. A person who does not repent, we count him to be an unbeliever. And this is why. Because the Spirit comes to us from Christ through our faith produces repentance. And so that means just something very encouraging. Good works for a believer are inevitable. That's not a threat. That's a promise. What God began in you, Paul says in Philippians 1.6, what God began in you, he will complete it. God is at work in you, both to create the will and the doing of his good pleasure. And so, day by day, we read the word about Christ. He is our Savior. We read of what God has done in him to send us the Holy Spirit. And we respond to that news in faith. Every day, we wake up believing in Jesus Christ. And every person who has entrusted himself to Christ, Christ has given him the Spirit. The Spirit, day by day, causes that believer. Imperfectly, yes. But nevertheless, He causes every believer to grow in Christ's likeness. To walk as Christ walked. To be careful to obey God's rules and to walk in God's statutes. So this is saving faith. God is in Christ. By faith, we are united to Christ. And in Christ, God and man are reconciled. And in Christ, we find the empowerment of the Spirit to walk in His ways. And that becomes really critical for us now as we start to consider what a church is. If a church is a gathering of believers in Jesus Christ, then that means those believers are reconciled to God. But if the church is a gathering of believers in Jesus Christ, then that means they all possess the Spirit. And that means that group of people ought to behave differently than those who are not part of the church. And that means that that behavior then can become a line, as it were. Their, their repentance can become a line that separates those who are not in Christ from those who are in Christ. The boundary around the church in large measure, is seen through our repentance. That we make visible in baptism and that we make visible by a changed life. So we will conclude there today and next week we will pick up with uh, what this union with Christ means for the church and consider that. But any questions that you have in response to this? Any blanks that you didn't get filled in? Faith is more than mental assent. A-S-S-E-N-T, or mental agreement, we could say. Faith is not merely saying, yeah, I know what God says, and yeah, I think that's true. 
Faith is actually saying, that's true for me, and I need it. I entrust myself to that. Okay. Any questions? No? Yes, got another question? What's that? It is understandable. 